a plane has started flying over right as I intro. This is how we start the newest episode of RTFM uh, podcast RPG book club. Uh, I am Aaron King. My only life update is that I was stung by a wasp recently. I hate that. I am Max Lander. I am allergic to wasps, and so that is upsetting on a on a deeper on a deeper level for me. One threatened looked at me in a threatening manner today, and I went inside. I was like, "Fine, the whole deck's yours. <laughs> you win." And our special guest today. Uh, hi. <laughs> Who are you? Where can people find you if you want uh, to find you? My name is Adam Waldron Blaine. Um, I don't know. I exist. Um, I, I I sometimes post about Dungeons and Dragons on my Twitter account, which is at Adam WB. Cool. I have been very excited to get you here. Uh, we'll maybe talk about that stuff later. Um, but our book today is Rules to the Game of Dungeon, which was also called Minneapolis Dungeon or just Dungeon. Uh, it was written down by a 14-year-old named Craig Van Grasdeck in 1974 before D&D was published and distributed. Um, he had played a local version names vary um possibly he had played a game called oh shit where is it castle keep uh and internalized the rules and wrote them down um and so yeah 1974 14 year old wrote this very short game uh it is available for free a pdf like craig provided it to academic john peterson on his Playing at the World blog, so there will be a link in the show notes if you want to read it with us. And it's delightful. It's very it's delightful. not 300 pages. <laughs> it's 18 pages. It's so, uh, so few pages. <laughs> yeah, so John Peterson kind of uncovered, rediscovered this book when he was writing Playing at the World, which was his first book. It's about RPG history. And uh, it's very strange and fun. Have you read that book? Have you read no. the RPG history book? I'm surprised. It's uh, it's an academic book, so it's like eighty dollars or something. Every so. every couple of months, I find myself very close to buying um, one of his books. I think more likely the one that I'm interested in is the Elusive Shift. Yes, that one I've heard it's much better. Even. Uh, y- yes, I'm. I think he agrees because he seems to not make his original one super available anymore <laughs> um but uh i think it's interesting and i think it's interesting it's reading this rule book makes me want to read it again I, i'm going through one of those phases again so it could be me but i i've got enough i got enough books i don't and it's it's not 80 dollars. it is it is 46 canadian dollars it's a little bit more reasonable yeah which you know is almost free for aaron <laughs> I guess so. Um, That's how money works, right? I don't yeah, know. That's right. Yeah. Let's jump into this book. Um, it starts with a foreword from Craig where he's just like, hey, I'm going to send this out to everyone in an APA. These are the rules that we're, we're playing this weird game around here in Minneapolis. Um, there's no mention of Dungeons and Dragons. There's no mention of Gary Gygax or Dave Arneson. And he's just kind of putting it together to send out to all these people um i don't know what do we want to talk about where do we want to start i mean the cover the cover is phenomenal 
the cover rules. This cover is apparently a reconstruction. So <laughs> I, I'm I'm very curious about like where the what the source materials for this were. Like <laughs> like they must have had a like bad quality version of it, but I'm like, did Craig draw this this year? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so it is um like a drawing of a dungeon or a maze with all these word bubbles uh between the players and the games master um and it's like very jokey saying it's a chamber there are 46 plate armored goblins 29 ghosts a giant centipede with hobnail boots 3009 pigeons etc etc just like some very you know early dragon magazine nerd humor 183,976 red ants how dare you leave that out (laughs) (laughs) right uh, a phalanx of sixteen million twenty-seven. What? Not that? No, no, it, nothing of them. Just a phalanx of. You know, it's fine. Right. Nor- normal phalanx. Yeah. And then a neo fan brigade, which is a brigade of new people new to the fandom community, which we will probably get into at some I point. Think, yes. And an orc <laughs> with a K. One orc. One orc with a K. Um, Different than orc with a C. That's a that's a foreshadowing for your next episode, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it, it, orc with a K. Good call. Good call. It's more metal. Um, yeah, I don't know. Did things jump out at you just as far as the contents of the rules go? Was there anything you wanted to praise or talk shit about? I mean, it like it's written. It's it is written by a kid like a kid is writing in a journal, and I love that. <laughs> like it's not. The structure of it is uh, great, and it is just, like, it's very conversational. Like, right off the bat, I was like, yeah, you, this is, like, you're just having a chat with your buds about a game, and they happen to write it down. But, like, I remember writing things like this when I was younger. Like, this is just me being like, people care about what I think. This is great. <laughs> uh, I now have a podcast, so I make people care about what I think. But... Uh, <laughs> So this is the this is the adult version of that, but uh, I yeah I love it for that. Like it has a lot of like the you know it starts with a forward, and I, I this is weird because I feel like sometimes we have um, potentially like blasted books that do this, but I actually like that it's just like in conversation with the reader, like it's mm-hmm. talking directly to us, and there's something about it being like short and conversational that like contextualizes that as charming whereas in other books that we've read it's been like please stop telling me all your designer thoughts i just <laughs> and I almost want it. almost every section of the rule or every like major rule has some kind of a little sassy aside about like this one person whose maze does something different and uh you know the, you the reader can be the judge of whether or not that's a good idea yeah, it's yeah, very it's personal good. and it feels hyper local. Like he refers to other people by name and talks about their mazes and their rules. Um, which I I really like great. the. There are so many mazes. This is on the first page. There's since there are so many different mazes run by so many different people, there are bound to be many discrepancies and idiosyncrasies among them. Because of this, it would be nearly impossible to publish a rule book truly representative of all mazes. And I feel like that's just a dig at the entire <laughs> RPG world that is to come. Well, and it's like a dig at the future. Just don't even try. It's like he knew exactly that Advanced Dungeons and Dragons would have to eventually be written. <laughs> just and like he's don't already do like, it. Yeah, you shouldn't. 
You should not do it. Two people are too unique and too interested in different things. Just make a thing that is about your exact thing. Uh, um, yeah, so the basic stuff of the game, you have characters, they're called personas. They don't have any ability scores. They just have basically class, priest, wizard, or warrior. Uh, and then a rank, which is sort of like a level. Um, you only have a roll 2d6. Uh, stuff happens when you roll doubles. You're expected to kind of go through this map, and you enter chambers, um, and the GM will generate creatures when you enter the chamber and then generate treasure when you defeat the creatures um and yeah there's sort of an expectation that someone you will play multiple characters often and if you didn't bring enough characters you can hire these simulacra these fake people that maybe we'll get into later as well um but yeah like that's the basic outline of the game it doesn't bear a lot of similarities to D past like the fantasy trappings um Mechanically, it feels a lot different from my experience with D&D. I guess the generative maze situation is a little bit like, yeah, you open the door, you roll the dice, you see what's in there. You kind of communicate that. But yeah, beyond that, it's a, it is its own, its whole own thing. <laughs> I really like the way that that is given such an importance in this writing, um, that the first part of the rules is about how to make your maze. Um which is sort of like not how it's done, especially in later more product-oriented Dungeons and Dragons is, which are like, yeah, and you can buy an example or even <laughs> we'll put an example in the back. But like, this is the opposite of that. This is like this idea that um, this is in fact the first thing you're gonna do with this with this text is- Yeah, you... mapping comes right after the introduction. And yeah. it does set up this expectation that everyone who plays will also have their own maze that someone else will play through at some point. Like, there is a game master and player separation, but only in the moment. It's It seems like you everyone is expected to have their maze, and if you're at their house for the afternoon, you go down that maze. Uh, which is cool. Like, it seems much more about building a community or, like, maintaining this kind of fan community and letting everyone have a chance to make their weird personal things yeah i guess that i mean that's kind of that's kind of similar to od and d right like everybody had their their dungeon right. i guess i guess it was not everybody it was like a select few had their big old dungeons that they maintained and it wasn't like players there that divide seemed much stronger yeah it's it, like it is this material is in od and d but it's in a separate book book one is like it, it yeah. invents this you know proto player's handbook right um whereas this one is very much that this is the basic thing um yeah the beginning first rules first commands um yeah and then it goes through like generating treasure in the dungeons um and the monsters and stuff lots of weird treasures lots of weird monsters (laughs) so many weird treasures (laughs) Uh, one of the treasures is a sage, which I feel like we have to talk about. Yeah. Um, the line is, a sage is actually an extension of the game's master's own self. And so if the players roll <laughs> on the treasure table and a sage comes up, the game's master's sage sona appears and is like, 
hey, you all want to play blackjack? <laughs> or can I fix your weapons? Or if you've made me mad tonight, I will take some of your treasure. Or I'll give you a, a, a map or a secret or some other kind of, uh, I don't know, more um, directly play-oriented thing. But it's funny how these things are not... Um... Also, importantly, sages are the absolute masters of the maze, answerable only mm-hmm. to the gods, spelt with an H. <laughs> G-H-O-D-S. Yeah. <laughs> Which I have never seen. I guess Ever once. Is, I guess this is where we get into the fandom stuff. Um, so that's like an outgrowth of 1970s science fiction fantasy fandom. And they had their Very own... Very standardized spelling, in fact. Uh, what? <laughs> I'm too young it for is, this conversation. Yeah. I'm leaving. No, no, it's true. And, and so they have, they've had their own gods um, as a way... You know that so there's fan cyclopedia that we were looking at beforehand, and in there there's an article about gods, and it does mention like a lot of people had negative relationships with religion in their youth, and so that's part of why we have these jokey gods, G H O D, um, and like one of them is beer, but with an H after the B, but then there are like <laughs> weird extended fan fiction gods, like the Great Spider, <laughs> which was invented by another. Uh, Minneapolis person. It seems from... like Blue Petal, who's who ran the uh, Castle Keep, was one of the originators of yeah of, of the spider, the great spider. Uh, Blue Petal, aka Lewis Fallert, who lived in Minneapolis. Um, did you read his article on Fancyclopedia? I I looked I looked very briefly into into Blue Petal. Uh, sometime in the early '80s, he married a mundane and was faffiated which means forced away from it all. So he married someone who is not a fan and forced away from fandom. And after that, no record of Blue Petal until his death, which is kind of strange. Um, it's super this, weird to be a dude the, calling yourself Blue Petal. This is, like a, this is like a little secret world. And yes. I mean, like from my perspective uh, and like my own interest in like this type of game and like old school Dungeons and Dragons etc like I have this interest and some knowledge about like about like the sort of wargaming element of it especially um you know with my friends I've been playing Fletcher Pratt's naval war game outdoors in parks over the summer which is this ship's game from the 1930s so like getting Amazing. into it <laughs> yeah um and it's great um but like this um this like fandom fan culture and and even for me to say that seems really weird because those words like sort of mean something quite different in the current context i feel like right um is sort of a this necessary ingredient and as i was reading this and thinking about it i'm i'm like i'm having a little bit of flashbacks like when i was a kid in the 1990s um, like my mom is a neo-pagan and like she was part of this <laughs> scene you know there were people who were like SCA nerds uh, in her extended social circle so I have like a small amount of exposure to like sort of the tail end of this culture before I think it is like taken over and now being a fan means you either post um, fan cams on Twitter or you love Disney right so 
I don't know if you've caught this in the past episodes, but I was raised by Wiccan lesbians in the wilderness of British Columbia. <laughs> uh, and uh, and they're, they are so... It's it's funny that you like make a connection between those two things because my mm-hmm. experience growing up with uh, a bunch of Wiccans is that they were so far away from anything nerd adjacent. Like oh, I was the weirdo who wanted to like read a comic book and even like read fiction on some level, right? Like it was like they were all reading and maybe this is just my mother's small community, but they were like, no, we're going to read nonfiction. We're going to read bell hooks. We're going to read, which is great. And I read a bunch of that growing up too. But like, it was like, we are in women's studies, nonfiction land constantly. And I was like, but what about dragons though? (laughs) I mean, this is like, this is familiar to me to a certain extent, but I have a very different uh, version of this because my mom was on a journey during this time you know, from she she um, you know uh, an origin as a as a feminist who got into Wicca, but like pretty quickly figured out the figured out the Wicca wasn't right for her. So this is like at some point on her journey from Wicca into heathenism, which is very much like we are going to make Monty Python restaurant uh, references <laughs> at the same time as we are um, you know doing this serious business. I think I would have been more uh, more game if that had been an option. It was just like Wicca constantly, and I was like, I don't, like, I can only dance naked under the stars so much. I am embarrassed. I am of an age where this is embarrassing. Please leave me alone and just let me be a normal kid. Uh, right, well, anyway, totally, totally tangential. Real, real origin story uh, time. Yeah, I don't know. I, this is the stuff that I'm that is totally being called up to mind by this anyway. Yeah, and it, I, um, a lot of it comes out of like hippie culture too. It looks like just yeah. looking at like some of the names of their APAs and stuff. Um, and I feel like hippie culture was like a marriage of early nerd stuff and drugs and you know pagan heathen culture uh, and like jokes and you know making a false idol in order to take the power away from the serious idols. And so I see it. I see the connection. I am um, in. So in the game that I run, uh, I have this little, um, the one part of my, my regular play pattern. I do allow myself to make a small Monty Python joke, uh, which is <laughs> that when I ask new characters to introduce themselves, I use this delightful little ritual that, uh, they invented uh, for Tim to the Enchanter. So I ask uh, everyone to introduce their character's name and then their quest. Uh, and, and, you know, I've primed the pump by saying, you know, you can try to get some gold pieces maybe. Um, and then I have this table of 100 uh, random questions for them to roll on. But just recently, some of the newer players who are a little bit younger than me, and I think you too, um, uh they watched uh, that film for the first time, and and suddenly, like all of this, uh, this like um, way that this kind of humor sort of like seeps throughout role playing game culture, sort of like <laughs> fell into place for them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I first watched that movie. You know, I was like ten, and my cousin with a rich dad like found the VHS and was like, "You gotta watch this." Um, and I was in a small town, and I didn't have any, like, nerd uh, communities. I mean, I had friends and stuff, but we just didn't do any gaming stuff. I didn't know anyone that was, like, obsessed with Monty Python or anything like that. And so it's very strange to think that, like, 
there is this culture aggressively sharing those jokes, but also very strange the idea coming to D&D without ever having seen Monty mm-hmm. Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, I, I love that. Um, do you want to talk about your game? I mean, we have a bit more of the book to talk about. We can come back to it. But uh, your game is a big reason that I yeah. well, invited like, you here. And... I think this stuff is really tangled up. Um, like all of it is like when I was so I I started running a old school Dungeons and Dragons like game in 2011 slash 2012 depending on exactly how you measure it um, and that turned into a, a weekly game that I've run since since 2012 basically uh, lately it's been twice a week um, we'll see how long we can maintain that pace <laughs> that's a lot um, but um you know, I came to, I came back to to this kind of stuff after a long time, and so like I'm reminiscing about my childhood in the '90s because there's other parts of this that are really um, reminding me of that. Um, so like when I was a small child, my older brother was playing Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Second Edition with his friends, and that sort of was how I got into it. Um, but then, you know, I played a very small amount of Third Edition when that came out and then moved across the country and didn't have a circle and had some aborted attempts to, uh, to to make that happen again when I was in high school, I guess, but then sort of just didn't do it for over a decade. And then um, I was doing some other, you know, I, in my past life as an artist, quote unquote, I was doing some projects. I was thinking about games a lot. I was, you know, it was the 2000s, the mid 2000s, early 2010s um so i mean i still do this but I, uh, this was the thing at the time i was playing um playing tag playing manhunt every week in the summertime in downtown in the city that i live in and i was setting up like other uh events like that i was i was doing this um this uh, water fight cops and robbers type scenario it was great um but part of what i was thinking about with that with this like very sort of um uh, this is both like very wholesome and a little bit cringe, but like, you know, recent <laughs> art grad uh, being like, ooh, just like the Situationist International, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so I was really interested in in like games that are feel like sport in a certain way where they have this competitive angle, but then like the bottom sort of drops out of that a little bit and you end up... Um, making your own um you know you know that tension between like something that's competitive but also something where everyone is sort of just going at their own pace and even sometimes once the game starts to get some narrative elements introduced into it to really like have to choose narratively what it means to succeed or fail at the game which eventually led me to like reading story-games.com and then learning about old school Dungeons and Dragons in this very um the opposite way that uh, the, I think the main body of OSR people, uh, as, as certainly at that time, came to it. Right. Um, and I still feel this way that very often, you know, my relationship with old school Dungeons and Dragons is always colored by the fact that I get really excited about something, and then I slowly realize that a lot of the other people into it are into it for the opposite reason that I am. <laughs> um, 
uh, and you know some of them are really bad people um, uh, for related reasons. So, right. um, and and I mean this is why like I think this podcast that y'all are doing is like really it's really great because it is about this. Like I want to play old school Dungeons and Dragons because it's really like messy and uh, <laughs> yes. and like questionable, and yeah. And I'm really interested in this dynamic of it being like a little zine DIY project that gets like taken over by itself and and ends up being this like big cultural product and et cetera, et cetera. So is your game, is it, it's like roughly BX-ish? Um, is that? It's as messy as always. Like, so this game of dungeon, is the authentic way to play Dungeons and Dragons. This is what this is the simplest way that I would describe it. So this was published um, on uh, John Peterson's blog in 2014, I think, and he had previously mentioned it in 2012. So this is pretty soon after I started playing, but um, this material was not available to me. And so when I was starting up, I was really interested in well, some of the stuff you you two were talking about last time. Um, about um, the uh, original setting, original D&D setting booklet. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying the title of that correctly, but... And then the other sort of PDF zine was Philotomy's Musings, which has a similar sort of sensibility about, like, um, untangling the rules of original D&D and, like, sort of following them and, and making sense of it and, and, and the spirit of, of, rule, of making rulings based on it. And I remember reading also a bunch of, uh, a few blogs in particular that really set me on this track, being interested in specifically original D&D because of how um, empty it is of um, instructions for how to actually do it. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, and um, uh, the Alexandrian was a big one. And the other one was this blog called The Mule Abides that no longer exists. And I have mixed feelings in hindsight about, um, but that's fine. I, um, anyone that read OSR blogs like in the early yeah. 2010s has some mixed now, feelings. Yes, absolutely. Um, so at this time, um, like you know, publications like this one were things that I knew historically existed. Um, I remember reading John Peterson's blog and um, thinking about whether I should buy his book um, for the first time, uh, and people talking about these. Um, these alternative ones that sort of were in the early days when they couldn't, um, you know, there weren't enough copies of Dungeons and Dragons to go around. And so it was known that people had all these like little remixed versions. Um, and I was super interested in that. So I thought, well, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make one. And, and that is like in the nineties, there was this later term of the fantasy heartbreaker, which is a much bigger style of game, but is fundamentally the same thing that like, my house rules are so special <laughs> that um, I'm going to publish them. And, and people will see that uh, I have correctly understood Dungeons and Dragons um, in a way that no one else ever has. Um, so I, <laughs> you know, I got a, a very bad copy of original Dungeons and Dragons off of BitTorrent uh, because you couldn't buy it then. They weren't selling PDFs at that era either. That changed pretty soon. Um, and I um, got the... Um, the rules for Swords and Wizardry, which was one of the retro clones of those days that um, claimed to be uh, like original Dungeons and Dragons, but I quickly found out um, that's sort of not true um, in lots of ways. And some of those are to do with um, uh, them being afraid to like directly 
uh, make it too close or something because of this uh, very vague feeling of copyright that was um, a big thing people worried about in that moment. Um, and also partly just because I think, um, well, people who write role-playing games are often not very good at um, writing role-playing games. <laughs> <laughs> That's That should be the new mantra of the show. <laughs> Uh, I do feel like that aligns with what we the conclusions we often end up yeah. at, even if it is not <laughs> where we start. We're like, I'm really excited about this, and then we get to the other, I'm like, this is dumb. This is a dumb game. People who wrote it are dumb. They should feel dumb. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. It's always interesting for me because I like I started playing D and D. I don't know early 2000s I guess probably right around 2000 uh, and I had only my like gateway drug was Magic the Gathering mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which I loved and then people were like you know how all those things you love about Magic the Gathering there are other games uh, that like are a little bit less a little bit less just mechanical um, that you can play and uh, and I grew up way too poor for Magic the Gathering anyway. Like, I only played it with other people because they <laughs> they had mm-hmm. decks and cards and whatnot. But, um, yeah, and I played offline. Like, I didn't go to blogs. I didn't – I was not looking at any communities. I was looking solely at, like, my IRL people and, like, an occasional con that would be in the city. But, like, had – no reference for what was happening on the internet uh and like so part of this is because i just like i was i was very computer literate because i've always been like a weird uh digital artist but i wasn't very social online um and so part of that is also because i didn't go to university and i don't know if y'all y'all are old enough but i don't know if this is a moment you remember but when facebook came out you had to have a mm-hmm. university email to get a Facebook account. And I was the only one of my friends that didn't go to university. <laughs> and so everybody was communicating on Facebook and I couldn't get into Facebook for years. <laughs> um, and so I just never really like became, I mean, to this day, I still kind of hate social media in all its forms, but like I never really became an online communicator and so had like no had no frame of reference that all of this was happening was just like nah I just play D&D with my buds once a week once a week for years and had no idea about the like larger conversations around it or the history of it um which is part of why I find like it's part of my motivation for doing the podcast in general is because I'm like I know none of this stuff like I was just like whatever third edition I guess that implies that there are editions before it and that other people have been doing this but I'm not even gonna think about it I mean, one of the funniest things about the game of Dungeon is that this 14-year-old author doesn't know that Dungeons & Dragons exists. Right, it's amazing. And and thinks that the person who ran the game that he first played in was the first person to ever run a game like this, even though it seems like that person probably played in Dave Arneson's game or or played in the game of someone else who played in that game or or something like that. So, and this, this, I think if, like, this person... Craig, who wrote these rules, is like the equivalent of being very online. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's going to like fandom conventions and, and um, playing games with uh, all these grown nerds. Yeah, so grown he... Grown nerds, what a concept. <laughs> the rules were meant to be distributed in an APA, which is um, all the contributors send their content to one person 
and that person collates it and then makes copies and then sends those back out to everyone that contributed and then often as is mentioned in the intro there are like extra copies to give away or sell at conventions and stuff like that um and it's such an interesting way to publish stuff and Mm -hmm. there's very little to no money involved um often people are losing money because they are paying to have copies made or paying you know renting typewriters and stuff and like immediately i tried to draw a connection between that and like itch games or whatever but there are some huge differences that i think make that a very like fallacious and bad comparison um give us all the differences walk us through your thought process (laughs) no 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 i mean uh i there is a lack of monetization to apas and to a lot of fan culture of this era this 70s into the 80s i think it survived into and maybe even into like pre-internet uh you know 90s but I don't want to assign a moral value to it, but my heart immediately is like, it's so noble, you know, to make this stuff and just distribute it. And it gets at kind of what we talked about of like OD&D as well as just kind of this like folk art oral tradition yeah. that is passed around. Um, one, one of my favorite stories about OD&D is that the first, the first printing of OD&D has hobbits and ants in it. Um, of course, Gary Gygax claims that he hated Lord of the Rings and he was never inspired by it, but uh, <laughs> those, are, those are in it. And Balrogs, of course. Um, but by like a year later, they, of course, got a bunch of threatening letters from the Tolkien estate um, and they changed those. So now we have halflings and ants and Baylor. Right. Um, which are not the same thing at all. Um, <laughs> but like that is like that's like this like blissful origin where the fact that there's any money involved in this or there's any question of like um, ownership or um, copyright or whatever and it and at the same time they're taking those out they start they start writing the threatening letters to other people who are um, making their own DIY games or are publishing um, adventures that they say are um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons compatible or, or, or supplements or whatever. I guess adventures probably come a little bit later, but supplements for sure. Yeah. So that's like, I, that's, that's the original sin of Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> I think. Yeah. I mean, also just the world. Like, you can't be a good person to believe in copyright. It's not, they are, they are opposed yeah. concepts to yeah. me. I am not, I am not shy about saying that, but uh, <laughs> there's no, also artists shouldn't believe that that exists. But, um, <laughs> I have lots of opinions. I can it's hear Aaron a, trying to like say that. Yeah, I can hear Aaron trying to be like nice well, uh, yeah. and diplomatic. My one is like obviously I believe you know the things, the games that I value and love. I want the people that made them to survive under harsh capitalism and be able to make more stuff. And so like I believe their work is worthwhile, and a main oh, way yeah. of showing worth is via money and. Also, I am poor, and I want to get paid for the stuff I make. But then 100%. I'm constantly always imagining a more utopian version where that is no longer a concern. And, you know, I think also, like, there is there was this golden moment, like, just pre-social media, but, like, post-70s, where it was super easy to get 
a hold of like word processing software and like have a friend that works at Kinko's that prints stuff. And I think there's like a beautiful golden age of zines where people were making stuff super cheaply and kind of getting by. And I'm sure that's again a projection and imagined well, thing. But like <laughs> I think there's also like there's an important distinction. Like one, yes, everybody should be paid for the 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 effort that they put in that they consider to be labor. <laughs> Right? Like, if I'm saying I'm doing this for work, I deserve to be paid for it. Uh, but that's very different. One, like, copyright has never helped an independent person get paid literally right. ever. Um, and, <laughs> and there's a huge difference between I'm playing a game and I'm making materials for a game that I'm playing as a hobby and I'm trying to be a small business, right? Like, those are totally different viewpoints to come at making a zine from. And, like, both are legitimate and i think that like it's hard i think there there is a there is an internet era problem that a lot of us face about monetizing our hobbies and it is a thing i am trying to divest from every day right like i would like to just have some hobbies that i don't kind of mm -hmm. engage in that conversation about um that being said i do like release games and then charge for them because <laughs> that's that's, that's what you do. how the world works but <laughs> I also try it. Yeah, I, I am similar in that I'm like, oh, I do kind of want to figure out maybe from the inside how we like move. How can I engage with this community in a way that like moves it more towards those kind of utopic ideas? It's never going to get there. But like, what can I do to move in that direction? You know, um, and that's going to be a different metric and path for everybody who like who tries to think about what that question could mean. The, the other element to this is, of course, that these games are about winning treasure. Um, yeah. like in the actual subject right um, yeah. and this was like I don't know this was something that like made me one of the reasons that I was like you know especially in this um, uh, around 2010 2011 uh, moment when I was getting into old school D&D was like this is the rule that, that separates this older generation of games from um, from from more recent ones is that you win experience points for getting for getting the treasure and people were theorizing about you know what that does to play in different ways but i found it like very delicious that it was like <laughs> this exact thing that it was that i was like sort of like doing this vague um you know thinking again about fandom and the way that um fan what fandom is 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 something that's now determined by wizards of the coast and by disney and etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so that I was like making a, a vaguely anti-capitalist version of it by making this little heartbreaker that I was going to print and uh, bring my friends to the bar to play. Um, uh, but yet it was itself like uh, this bizarre, like yuppie fantasy from the 70s. Uh, yeah. One, one gold piece equals one experience point is like this amazing granularity that I understand is capitalist but also is did you say delicious someone yeah, else just it, like because it's like it it's making fun of itself like it it calls itself into question one of my favorite parts of this rule uh, that you may not have noticed but in the equipment list you can see that you can p purchase one piece of fool's gold for the cost of one gold piece <laughs> right <laughs> it's very good cuz when would you ever Maybe gold you got a much discount more, for, for volume? Gold is much more fungible. You can use gold for anything that you could use fool's gold for and use it as real gold. Yeah. 
the equipment list is beautiful. Um, Peterson talks about it too. You know, it has just like weapons and armor, but then it has like Dr. Scholl's foot powder, elephant joke book, uh, cans of garbage. Um, and a lot of these it's are. Really good. <laughs> it's really good. A lot of these seem to be set up as like lures and bartering tools for certain monsters. Uh, the cans of garbage can distract bears. There's cheese for rats. Um, it seems very specific that there's a one-to-one basis. Like, I have to imagine that this list came from, you know, players going into the dungeon one time, uh, into the maze. Sorry. Well, I guess you can call it a dungeon as well, but <laughs> it's the name of the game after all. Um, yeah. um, encountering some monster, um, you know, getting beat up. <laughs> And then escaping and being like, all right, all right, there are too many rats. We need, I mean, there's a story about cheese in the in the footnotes. Like, yeah. th- these cheeses were not originally on the list. The players went to the general store and were like, yeah, we need to get some um, Lysol spray. How much can right. we buy that for? <laughs> we need that. We need, in the other play reports, also talks about using jars of ragu that they discovered. <laughs> yeah, to, to distract like, the Italians. Appease some angry Italians. Uh, it's just, not clear how they interacted with the meatballs that you could also right. encounter in the dungeon. They were also the attacking dangerous meatballs. giant meatballs. <laughs> um, yeah, and then like the treasure includes stuff. You know, there's gold, there's magic items, the sages that we already talked about. But then it's also like you get a parachute or you get ice skates. And those are kind of in the same taxonomy as these magical items, which I just thought was very funny and interesting and must have a specific story, right? Like you would not need ice skates until you yeah. <laughs> went down into Bobby's dungeon and slid down I, the ice maze I mean, or something. Maybe th- these could have been the other way around, but yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I think I that's, really... that's probably all items in D D, yeah. right? Like that's one of the things that I feel like my like my backwards learning of like coming from like established like th- D&D 3 and then 5 and then going backwards into like OSR and uh, retro clones and whatnot is like oh yeah somebody decided that these are the circumstances that you're going to encounter when you're playing this game and this item list reflects those mm-hmm. circumstances right like it's well of course you know the only required item in this book is a torch obviously because how else <laughs> would you go into a cave right and it's like and the whole thing is going into this cave so like you better have a freaking torch and but I the feel light like balls don't last long enough yeah <laughs> Yeah, but I Max, feel like do you want to the... do you want to talk about light balls? <sighs> the wizard's balls, one version of the wizard's balls. <laughs> yeah, I just uh, my notes for this. I think I I sent them to Aaron. They were incredibly short. I read this and my notes were: daughters serve no purpose, spider shaped lollipops, <laughs> virgin simulacra, and wizard balls. That was it. There's those four things are what I took away from this whole book. And wizards, so it's that wizards function, like spells are just done via balls. You throw a ball and it's a different kind of ball. It's a light ball or like a fire, whatever. There's, I don't even know all of the different kinds of balls, but there are many kinds of balls and they come. And that's just like what being a wizard is. It's just like you're pretty much a juggler of strange balls. Right. Spells are stored in the balls. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Spells are stored in the balls. Uh, And (laughs) also things stored in the balls, potential daughters. Um, is a part of this game. When I first read these rules, I was like going pretty fast, and I didn't really understand the the rank chart. And um, and 
uh, and I sort of read the first line of the ranks chart is sons only. Sons only. Uh, and so my initial read was that um, there's some kind of um, special power you get when you go up level, which is that you'll you'll only have uh, good healthy heirs, <laughs> offspring. Um, but uh, it turns out that's not quite right. But also, it's not so wrong. Right, yeah, it's some real Crusader King stuff, so different you classes... You become chivalrous. Right, different classes will eventually... You become chivalrous, you, can, you can't be bad anymore, and then you have children. And the idea is that these children, they can sort of become your next characters or become another character that you're bringing with you. Um, and warriors can have sons that come with them and fight as apprentices, or they can have daughters that they have to pay the shopkeeper to babysit. <laughs> And that there's what's the line like daughter Max already said daughters it. have no rank. We're just gonna read the whole daughter section. They do not fight or heal. In fact, they serve no real purpose at all. They must either be brought down on descents or be babysat at the general storekeeper for thirty gold pieces of descent. Yeah. Uh, the only armor they wear is ornamental leather armor, which takes six hits. The only treasure they may take is jewels. They lose their parents' karma if killed. Daughters will be your downfall. Is what this 14-year-old uh, was like, no, I hate girls. There's a lot, because then the other weird hang-up, uh, one of the traits that characters have, you know, it's like, oh, is it a, an elf or a dwarf or a human, or is it a priest or a warrior or a wizard? Is Are they a virgin or are they experienced? The simulacra, yeah. Really, you can that's get, really important. You can get virgin simulacra, which I assume he's... I assume he means just experienced adventuring because no, it does no, no. say like it's virgin no, it's, it, or sexually experienced. <sighs> I wanted you, to read it that way. You, and then you I didn't, didn't read the actual play report about taming the unicorn. I you didn't. Need, you need to be a virgin. What? And you need 16 ounces of unicorn perfume. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, so there are moments when reading something written by a 14-year-old boy is great, and then everything else about being a 14-year-old boy and listening to what they think is a good idea is the worst. <laughs> but it is, a, like, you know, I imagine in 1974, maybe, unlike me, your mom does not have a copy of Our Bodies, Ourselves, hanging out in the house free to read, <laughs> and you just have, you're processing these weird hang-ups, and it comes out in this, obviously. Um, can I tell a really... I'm, I'll try to keep it short, but a story about young boys playing D&D and encountering sex. Is that okay with please, everyone? Please do. So I worked at a game store while I was an undergrad, and it was when D&D 4E came out. And the owner of the game store had two sons um, who were like 11 and 6 or something like that, or 10 and 6. And there was one day that they were there playing D&D with their friends, and it was the day that this place sold games, role-playing games and video games, but we also sold, like, incense and uh, nice. Sprint and Verizon cell phones. And so on this day, all the exchange students who were coming to this university for the first time, the their organizer brought them all in to get American cell phones to use while they were here. So there's, like, 20 18-year-olds, most of them English as a second language, all needing like different intricate cell phone needs from me and the owner was supposed to be there to help and was not so I'm just like taking forever processing all this stuff and the older boy the 10 year old comes up and he's like Aaron I have a D&D question for you and I said it's really busy I'm sorry I cannot help you but once these people are done I would be happy to help you and finally the owner shows up and we rip through all these cell phone applications and get everyone phones 
And then the, the older son goes, okay, Aaron, can I ask you this question now? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, Blake, his little brother, is a dragonborn. What would his baby be if he had a baby with an elf? And the owner, who is just having a terrible time, just went, excuse me? And went downstairs and got his younger son and brought him up to the office. Because I, am, I can only imagine he's thinking like, my, my boys are downstairs like talking about having sex and having these weird <laughs> sexual fantasy relationships. And I hear like muffled yelling uh, from the owner and from the son. And then it ends with, I just hear the son, the six-year-old yell, I'm sorry, dad, I'll get a divorce. <laughs> Just building a dynasty. Right. And just like in his six-year-old eyes, it was not that he was playing a sexual fantasy game. It was mm-hmm. that he had married the wrong person and should not be having a relationship with this elf. And I think about that at least once a month. Thank you for letting me tell my story. <laughs> I mean, like, this stuff is like... This is sort of like one of my crank opinions about uh like the whole hobby is that this stuff is like this is part of why i play old school dungeons and dragons specifically because like um the only games that seem to have solved these problems are ones that are pretending basically um and like this stuff is in the like deep roots of the roots of the hobby and i don't even think in this version i don't think it is that Craig is 14 years old. I think this is actually just the way that play culture talked about this stuff. Because, like, I don't know, I remember, like, maybe the first time that I ever, like, seriously uh, thought about gender, and maybe this is just, like, privilege speaking too, but I remember, like, when I was, like, 10 years old or something, reading the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Player's Handbook, and they've got a little disclaimer in that era about how they're going to use the word he throughout the book to refer to you, the reader, or, like, anyone, basically. General, yeah. Um, And so, like, all of this stuff, like, you know, at different points in the history of, like, quote-unquote, the hobby, um, has different sort of accepted solutions, but, like, they're all clunky as hell. And, I mean, like, the, like, this is something I think about a lot, like, in, like, so-called contemporary games. Like, if you buy the big... D&D book, although 5th edition doesn't do this so much. 5th edition pretends to, tries to pretend this stuff doesn't exist for the most part. But like Pathfinder, I think, is very aggro about this, about being like, um, you know, the the end game of like Gigaxian naturalism, the idea that monsters have ecology is that, um, you know, uh, different monsters um, have different possible natures and they all have different um, genders and, and sexes among them. Um, and I'm like, but sorry, the, the monsters in this book are called things like a harpy. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. you can't, you can't just, <laughs> you can't just file that off and say, oh well, there's there's man harpies too. Like, th- that stuff is like, it's there. It's like, it's 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 integral anyway. Right. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a real. I, I know why nerds are generally unwilling <laughs> to make this change, but, like, if we want our game... One, our games are never going to be perfect, but if we want our mm-hmm. games and our media uh, and our hobbies to move in the direction of being nicer to a larger amount of human beings, some of it has to go. 
right? Like some of it has to be removed from the game. And I think that like people are really unwilling because of nostalgia, which is a, a piss poor reason to be unwilling to change. Um, I will never respect nostalgia. <laughs> so like we can, we grow, we learn, we progress, we become better people. We can, our actions can reflect that. Um, and yeah, I do think there's a like, we could just, I mean, I'm here for, I'm here for man harpies though. Like I, well, I, I will mean, say I am here for man harpies. It's but actually that... like, it's an interesting and productive thought, but like it's interesting and productive because of how it doesn't even address the, the <laughs> actual thing. Like again. But I think that's the thing, right? It's like how complex do people want their games to be? And a lot of people think that games are a place that shouldn't, should be somehow exempt from that kind of complexity, yeah, right? Uh... That's not the solution, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I am not one of those people. <laughs> not even a little bit. So, I mean, one of the thing, one of the ways that um, this, that, I, like, and this is me, how I read the game of Dungeon also, is, like, my coping strategy when I play D&D is to make fun of the game a little bit when I'm, when I'm going through it. And so I feel like there's a version of me that, it, that speaks kind of a lot like this 14-year-old kid being like, oh, well, this rules are a bit silly, or, like you know, this concept is uh, bad. Um, uh, and um, uh, so I see like this weird kinship, even though this text is blind to these specific things that jump out at me immediately reading it. Um, it still has this like insouciant attitude anyway, uh, which uh, I hope I hope can be productive. <laughs> yeah, it has no like gigaxing, like yeah, all the Gygax stuff is so like faux academic. Has aspirations of this like ironclad perfect language, and this has none of that. And it is it just seems much more like a social beer and pretzels activity, with no dues paid to like verisimilitude or realism or naturalism or anything. And I like that. And I like do just wonder like what would the hobby look like if it had stayed. Yeah, closer to that instead of this kind of, like you said, the Gygaxian naturalism and just this like aspiration toward, uh, you know, epic fantasy and full narrative and stuff like that. I mean, I feel like I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of games that are the are the answer to that. Oh, there are a lot of them out there. I think there are a lot of games that address that. In lots of interesting ways, in like good ways and different results, but like I don't hobby in general, like any. the critical role. Uh, what? I mean, like I, when you. Well, it depends on what you're stating as your goals. I'm hearing those goals as a community-based anti-capitalist hobby that is interested <laughs> in, right? Like that is interested in changing some of the iconography and history and like. And I don't know games like that. Uh, I know I great about, retro clones. I was just talking about being goofballs, not about. I mean that, but stuff. like, but that, like, but that part of that community bit is like I, you know, I say anti-capitalist, and anti-capitalist is a serious way to frame community-oriented yeah. endeavors, right? It's not. It doesn't actually need to be that serious. It's just this is a community effort, and community it, efforts sit often in opposition to capitalism. And so when I say anti-capitalist, I don't mean like it has to be a part of the anti-capitalist discourse on Twitter. I just mean it's a community effort. Um, and like, I don't. I don't know of any games that are kept alive via community. I know games that are kept alive via marketing and via sales, and then via play like fandom 
right? Like all of the, and this is not a dig, but like every major indie that has made it is because they have developed good marketing practices, not because they went around selling hand-to-hand things out of the back of a truck, right? It's because they know how Facebook advertising integrates with Kickstarter, right? Like, it's not like, and those are different skill sets, and that, that's not, like, that's not what I consider, like, community stuff. And this, I I play those games, I buy those games, I support the Kickstarters, again, not a dig, but it's a different thing. And so I don't actually know games that are currently being kept alive via community and not via product. Mm. Could be wrong. Please at me internet about games you think are being kept alive well, in the community. Well, I wonder if part of that is like if people are doing it, they're just doing it. Like they're not tweeting about it or whatever, you know, like if you're just playing a game every week, you don't necessarily need to market it. Like you're getting the experience. Totally. And so, Which is why know, I'm that's saying why I don't know I, about them, right? Like yeah, I'm not yeah. playing those, so like <laughs> I don't. And that's why I was so intrigued by Adam's game in the first place is it's like it's it's not fully offline because there are lots of benefits from you know organizing stuff. Certainly these stuff. days, especially since we haven't uh, been ready to go back to playing in a bar again. So right, but like you and your players are just out there doing it, and you yeah. Have... I mean, it's it's tools of it's things that happen on the table, and, and like certainly. So you know, my game is structured very consciously as an open table game. So. Um, one of the benefits to playing a short little game <laughs> um, is you can just show up and you can make a character and you can get into the game all within a half hour window um, while you're like meeting people um, and for me like I was very consciously that I wanted to not play mostly with people who played a lot of games um, right. gamers right so I, I first started playing d and I was doing an artist residency um the theme of which was about um uh inspired by uh thomas mann's the magic mountain and we were going to the bounce center for the arts so we were going to be going into the sanitarium to live in an alternate time stream uh etc 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 um but um to me i was like "Ooh, we're going to the magic mountain like are there going to be goblins there um and uh, can we try to steal their treasure? So, um, <laughs> so that's when I like made my first little booklet, and I and I went and hosted games in my studio during this residency before I became a weekly thing. And and the people I was playing with were mostly um, not from the tradition. You know what I mean? They were weird artists who happened to be there. And when I was running it in person, um, uh, coinciding with me uh, moving back home, basically. Um, I was still very conscious that I really wanted an ideal table that was like maybe one third gamers, one third people who like had some other exposure to like these sort of mythic or romantic concepts. You know, they've they 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 remember <laughs> their mythology unit in junior high school, or they like video games or something else, um, or they've you know read classics or something. I don't know. And then one third people who sort of have very little expectations. And for me, that's like the ideal mix of people. And so structuring it this way as an open table is a way to achieve that. And so like you get this cross-pollination of people who are nostalgic and have all these attachments to like the really fucked up parts of Dungeons and Dragons, including me, like I'm nostalgic about it, uh, of course. Um, But at the same time, like you have to 
explain that to someone who has none of these entanglements and also like the kind of person that is in the community that I'm trying to cultivate is immediately going to be like, oh wait, this is this is uh, this is pretty weird actually. Um, uh, so I mean, that's a thing that we did that we, that we do that we continually do. I I hope um, uh, you know there's always going to be interpersonal conflicts in a long running group of people, but uh, overall, I feel pretty proud of like you know a lot of people have played my game um, either at the weekly event as a regular or as a drop-in person or like at a couple of small con events that I've done that kind of stuff I think that I've had three four hundred people come through that's so wild to me and and it's all like in one sort of shared continuity is the idea uh so it's cool um and you know I have these um I feel really proud like I know that uh I know that when uh when you found my blog Aaron many years ago that was an inspiration for you but a few of my regulars, you know, who um, stopped coming to my game but started up their own one instead. And for a little while, we had people who were playing who would bring characters back and forth between different uh, different games. So we had that real like vibe that is that, that this game is yeah. sort of experiences. Um, it's really great. I'm really proud of it. Um, but it's something that you know the only way that I can put it in the rule books is when I'm writing rule books that are just for my table. Um, really I mean I try to make them (laughs) more general and they have a bit in it being like yeah this game has harpies in it so you should make fun of that and make sure that everyone at the table knows that uh, like there's messed up stuff here and like and that we're on a team that we are the community together and that um, it's up to us to like um, yeah live the community that we want yeah, I feel like it's so funny because I, I, I mean, we 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 harp on D and D a lot here, here on RTFM D D and D, public enemy number one. But um, when I think about like as I'm as I'm listening to you describe uh, like your game and your table and and thinking about like is there are there any parallels for me that I like have played in or experienced? And it's it's funny because I feel like this is also the culture of homebrew, right? Like this is yeah. a lot of this is the culture of homebrew and like the idea that a table has been playing. Cause I, you know, when I was playing D and D weekly, we were playing third edition and, or rather we started playing third edition and by by the end of it I do not think we were playing third edition um I think we were playing our specific exact game that probably nobody else had played and I think that's the that's the that's also the argument and the reasoning that you get for people who really identify with Dungeons and Dragons right like the reason it becomes such a like personal uh identity issue or a part of people's identities is that I do think that there is this because because it's so huge, because it is so many people's first exposure, there is this, this is our game. This is our table's game. We've been working on it for so long. We've been changing things we don't like, right? And I'm like, yeah, you're not playing D&D. The game you're playing is so much better than D&D. Like what I mean when I say that is that the game that you are playing, whatever you've come up with at your table is so much better than what D&D is in, in the pages. And I think that like the more products D&D releases, the less that is true. Right. Yeah. Like for every single book that's released, they are killing a little bit of homebrew. <laughs> well, and they're killing it because they know that that is the feature that people look for. So, like, there is in D and D this phenomenon where they put 
like poorly conceived stuff in all the time. And then the next version comes out and they can't just rip it out because um, the people who they've successfully fooled into identifying with the brand instead of identifying with their own play community um, want that same, they want that continuity, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, I don't know, um, like in my game, because it's based on original D&D, we don't have a thief or rogue class because that wasn't introduced until Supplement 1 Greyhawk. And uh, this is like a hard line uh, for me um, because it's a gesture of being like, no, we're not, we don't include things just because they're in there. We include them if we specifically are interested in them um, or um, because because they're like so present and powerful that we should mock them a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. 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 It's weird. I don't know. I miss... It, I've, this is funny because I feel like this is this is not related to podcast at all. But I've been feeling very I've been feeling myself very nostalgic, not for uh, racism and misogyny in games certainly, <laughs> but um, but for the for the play experiences that I used to have, right? When I when I think, and that's also part of just like I'm an adult now. Everybody's got work. We all have lives. It's actually very hard to structure these kinds of things into lives that in a way that it's not when you're 19 or 21 or whatever. Um, but uh, but also there is that like the idea of of kind of in being in conversation with the game kind of constantly that I miss quite a lot right like I, I've been doing this thing recently with, with Aaron and a couple other friends where like we're you know we've been trying new systems also because <laughs> clearly an interest uh, also because this is how the podcast works but like where I've just been like there's just so many game systems and I'm like relatively new like last few years to indie games and so trying to like try as many as I can that are out there and the thing that's kind of missed is like really really getting to see all the dark corners of how games work uh, and all the like weird edge cases and all like being in that way that like yeah I'm also you know a video game designer and developer and I have I think a lot more you know this was a thing that Aaron and I have cut out of podcasts because we've gotten into the weeds about me being like but systems and Aaron being like but I like playing games and I'm like your way is better but it's not (laughs) Uh, but uh, but yeah like I I do like to think about systems a lot and I do like to get into all of the weird engagement of the mechanics and you can't really do that until you're playing something many, many times, right? Like I'm somebody who really likes homebrew, but I don't want to homebrew until I've played a game 10 times because I might be anticipating something. I want to see what People the game... People are so wrong about how games work. Like... <laughs> Usually, yes, right? Like they, well, at the very least, you don't know how they play when you read yeah. them, right? Well, like it's I've, kind of impossible. I've gone to a board game night with someone who's like, oh yeah, we played this game one time, we didn't like this rule, so we changed it. And I'm like, you played it one, one, one time yeah. and you changed <laughs> one of the fundamental rules? One, one time? And I, I, for me, it's like maybe, and maybe you do play it and you're like, I didn't have fun and so don't play the game again, right? Like that's sure. totally legit also. It's like, yeah. I didn't enjoy these. If it's a fundamental rule, I didn't enjoy that rule. Great, there's probably a better starting place for your exact game. Uh, but I do feel like that, you know, like when reading this, it's like, oh yeah, it would be, what a life, what a life, just like engaging with this, like developing this game over time and finding out all of the weird breakpoints. And... It's really cool. Um, <laughs> so on my, on, up. on my campaign, <laughs> on my game Discord server, you know, we've got a little channel called Rules Development. And like, you know, there's players who are researching spells or whatever, doing the sort of traditional D&D is 
way that you engage with writing rules but also like we hash things out if we play a game and we don't like something we'll like put it on a little watch list or we'll change it um and uh yeah it's awesome what can i say (laughs) (laughs) that was wholly not about the game this game of dungeon (laughs) in its original form I don't. I don't. I didn't feel like we needed to talk about anything. I just. No. You roll. You roll the dice. Sometimes you're trying to get a different kind of number, and other times you're trying to get a different kind of number. It's <laughs> less. It's it's more difficult to read chart wise than O D and D. The numbers are harder to read. My favorite part. Are I the blame. Rules. I blame John Peterson for this. I think it's. Uh, I bet the original typewritten document was more carefully uh, typed. Yeah. Okay, but it also includes things like <laughs> below are a few examples of humanoids. The first number is the amount of hits it may take. The second yes. number indicates how many hits it takes. Which then he has to explain in the footnotes. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. I'm like, I get it. One of them is how many hits it may take, and the other one is how many hits it takes. I understand. <laughs> but I read it and was like, wait, what? It's an error. Um, I... I guess the other thing about this is, like, this, like, little element of, like, oh, I can't tell you all the secrets about this book um, in that monster section that's super present there. Um, uh, our 14-year-old guide is, like, oh, well, um, of course I can't reveal everything. Um, and this is, like, very relatable uh, to me <laughs> also in my current play. Like, I don't know, like, I write these rule books and we talk about the rules but like i have my dungeons and my secret monsters and um my policy is that uh, i can reveal those if the players cause the world to end uh but until then they're li- it's all live material right so yeah. um it's got to uh it's got to say secret the weirdies was that the section yes the yeah dungeon some examples rolling meatballs snapping turks and volkswagens uh, but, uh, I can't list the characteristics of any of these as surprise is their weapon. They and the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> so <laughs> weird. Python. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, I feel like the I would be so it's it feels like such a such an artifact of a of play and of a game in a way that in more than a rules. Mm-hmm. book for how to play it right like when you're reading through it it's like so much of this feels uh like it is just like a cool little artifact uh even though it's trying to like mask itself as this is how you could possibly do it or this is how we do it if you want to replicate it um yeah i'm never going to get over virgin simulacra this is not, <laughs> i will never recover but it's just so good because I could totally see Adam posting like last week in the dungeon they encountered <laughs> yeah. signs of a unicorn and so this week they're trying to recruit a virgin <laughs> to try to get you know just like it I does mean, feel historically handed down in a really it, nice it's, way. It's it's exactly exactly that's exactly right that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I this it was it was a hoot to read. It is the it is the exact opposite. I feel like of the game we're going to read next. Like we're gonna go into this pit of like wannabe, like game empire games, right? Well, like that I'm are kidding. intended to be super products and like lifestyles. Yeah, but we are reading Warhammer First Edition, and a we lot are. of that was very influenced by like. Judge Dredd and 2000 AD comics, which were like the punk version of Monty Python almost. And so 
I'm hoping some of that comes through, and maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised. Maybe. Uh, maybe. So yeah, next episode is Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay with a guest, but that shall remain a secret so that we don't reveal their powers until the moment. Oh yeah, who could possibly guess who's going to come <laughs> and talk to us about Warhammer? Um, none, of, none of the people we know. Adam, was there anything else you wanted to plug? Do you want people to find you on Twitter? Uh, yeah, people can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm on there at Adam WB. Uh, you can ask me about my open table game. And open table means that I'm afraid to say this on a podcast, but uh, <laughs> open table is an open table, and we do play online right now. So we'll see it's how like, that goes. It's okay. We're not famous. <laughs> That's right. I'm sure that anyone who enjoys this podcast um, would probably... Uh, be uh, an excellent fit in my game. That's, yeah, if they got all the way here. Yeah. <laughs> if they got all the way here, they're probably okay. Um, all right. Well, I'm done. <laughs> Great. Thanks <laughs> for having me. Yeah. Thanks for making me read this silly little game. Aaron's yeah, like, thank I'm you. out. As per usual, find us on the internet, retweet the show, you can go to our Ko-Fi if you feel like giving us money after a whole show focused on not passing money around for our hobbies. Hooray! Bye!